Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Yesterday was the feast of St. Joan of Arc, a 15th century saint who, uh, you know, has been heralded in popular piety and in popular culture, but a saint that uh, I venture to say, you know, we don't think too much of. So we're going to spend some time getting to know St. Joan of Arc today. With me is Dr. Rachel Fulton-Brown, Associate Professor of History at the University of Chicago, where she specializes in medieval European religions, liturgy and prayer, and devotion to the Virgin Mary. You can visit her blog at fencingbearatprayer.blogspot.com, which we'll have linked at uh, our site, too. Rachel, good to have you back. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's good to be back. Tell me, first of all, what kind of documentary evidence, artifacts, where do we get the picture of St. Joan of Arc? What's the documentation or whatever historians will use? Well, it's mainly from her two trials. Um, The one that she had um, in her lifetime when she was condemned um, as a heretic, or relapsed heretic, and burned at the stake. And then the... um, uh, it's a recon- I don't know what what the term was. A, a later trial um, reconvened 25 years after her death um, to actually you know revisit the information that they had taken from the witnesses with, in which she was restored to okay. um, a good faith, as wow. it were. So, but she's um, I mean those are those are the 15th century trials. Her canonization doesn't take place until the modern period. So. If we're talking about what do we know about her historically, it's it's those two trial documents. Those, yeah, okay, that's the those are the chief sources. Um, what can you tell us about um, who she was? I mean, she, was she a mystic? Uh, was she especially clever? Uh, was she known for piety? Tell us a little bit about her. <laughs> um. Well, we don't know terribly much about her, right, except for from those trials. And in, um, it's interesting because she is uh, the, the, best, the strongest impression I get from reading the account of, of her trial in which she was witness, you know, giving, giving her own testimony is she, uh, she was 19 years old. She was arrayed before, you know, the doctors of, of Paris, as it were, um, who were desperate to prove that the um, anointing that she had helped carry out of uh, the Dauphin, who should be Charles VII, was um, not canonical, not authentic, right? And um, that she was able to get through their examination uh, without, in fact, being tripped up theologically is Mm -hmm. very much to her credit. But there are ways in which, I mean, mainly she manages not to get trapped by their they're clever questions like you know are do you believe you're in the grace of god and and her famous answer is like if, if i am may keep me there if i'm not may may i be <laughs> right <laughs> um that, that that they they play a lot of those sort of games with her asking her about um the the, the, the voices and the visions that she had of, of michael and catherine and margaret asking her you know why did you do that why did you do this and throughout her trial this this is a young woman who is incredibly self like possessed yeah. in, in the sense of incredible, incredibly wise and able to answer these tricks that they were trying to get her with. Um, in the end, I, there's there's probably there's probably nothing she could have said to prevent her from being being executed because it, she was in fact executed really as a military prisoner. Um, but that the trial takes place under this this religious 
um, guides is one of the more interesting things about the trial, right? Why isn't she, in fact, simply taken as, as it were, a, a traitor and executed as yeah. a military yeah. um, prisoner? Okay. Why? Why was she regarded as a heretic? Well, that's what's so interesting about the trial, right? They so everyone knows, maybe everyone doesn't know, but so she um, she grows up in in Domremy, which is um, within the in the civil war that's going on between the Armagnacs and the Burgundians and the French and the English. And Wild, you know, it's, it's it's straight out of something from you know Game of Thrones in terms of complexity of who's <laughs> on which side and how many people have betrayed whom to whom. Um, she grows up in a region of um, eastern France that is famous among other things, for having been the, the home of the great crusaders, right? Godfrey Bouillon and, um, and, and, and these families. Mm-hmm. And so by the 15th century, you know, there's a, there's a feeling in France, in, in that region of, you know, heroic military um, champions, right? And um, she, is, she says that she had visions from the time she was 13 or so. Um, and her voices, whom she identified um, as Michael, Catherine, and Margaret, some to some extent they, they look like they do in the pictures. Right? Um, and the and the the doctors in her trial try a lot of tricks to figure out whether or not she's making it up what she saw, right? So asking like what what color was her hair and <laughs> and things like that. Hmm. Um, she she says that her voices you know told her to come to the aid of the Dauphin Charles the Seventh, um, who was at that time not Charles the Seventh, he's simply Charles, um, who had. In the, in the midst of the Game of Thrones um, um, rivalries and betrayals, been betrayed by his own mother, in effect, um, who had claimed that he was illegitimate. Um, and, you know, that he, there's deals made between um, the Burgundians and the English king to recognize Henry VI, who's a baby at the time, um, as, the, as, the, as the rightful heir of, of France, which disinherited Charles, Charles. and Dauphin. Mm-hmm. Um, so Joan shows up and um, she sa- says to Charles, I'm here to help you get your, <laughs> your crown. Uh, interestingly, he, he doesn't want to talk to her at first. And, and th- there are a few sort of incidents in her in- encounter with him. One, that she goes and talks to him privately and says to him something that convinces him, right? And we don't know what that was. Um, he, he, he's sufficiently convinced to send her um, to help relieve the siege of Orléans, and that worked, right? That you know, and there's a, there's a really um, good book by Kelly DeVries, who's one of our main military historians of the Middle Ages, yes. specifically on Joan as a military commander. Yeah, which is interesting. One of the things that people just never think about, right? It's like, well, she, the reason that the the English and the Burgundians are so keen to have her executed is because she had actually had these military successes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and they need to prove that she's not sent from God, which I think is why she ends up being tried as a heretic, right? Because they really need to prove that her military successes are not divinely supported. Right. Um, but she does have these military successes, and that that is what one of the things that I think most interesting that comes out of her, um, at the second trial that's held after she's died, when her, her friends, particularly um, Jean Duc of Alençon, um, her squire, Jean Daulon, her page, Louis de Coute, and her confessor, Jean Pascal, they all testify on her behalf in this, this reconciliation trial. And they actually give a, a great deal of very interesting detail about what she was like in the field, right? What, what it was like being with her 
on these military expeditions. And <laughs> wow. the, 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 the stunning thing to recognize is they followed her, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind Charles believed her with, you know, what one could say it's a sort of fantastic story of, yes, I'll, I'll get you crowned. I'll get you anointed. He, she doesn't actually get him crowned. She gets him anointed. But these other men who did know her personally and, you know, daily in the field for the year or so where they're in campaigning were, you know, very um, supportive and appreciative of her ability primarily to raise morale right, of, so of the French. Was she more, did she start out more of a mascot or figurehead? And then eventually showed her skill. Well, this is this is what the the giant question is, and what um, Debris shows in his book is that you know the, the the decisions that she makes in the field, in in things like about you know when when to when to attack and when to place the cannons and, and such were actually fairly good. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And and all and also that she um, stands up to the the English garrison that's holding on to Orléans in in an effective way and makes appropriate decisions I mean, whether or not that's you know it, it's it's all based on the testimony of her her friends 25 years later right mm-hmm. and so whatever they're remembering i the thing is i think what what she is most of all is someone these men were willing to follow and that is why she's really worth thinking about it's like what kind of what kind of person was she that yep see see you know, see serious military commanders did listen to her. Yeah, yeah. No, I think, I mean, I think that's significant. You've got to account uh, for their actions. And the, the, I imagine they're probably all pretty seasoned veterans when it comes to uh, military campaigns. And so for this uh, 19-year-old to all of a sudden be showing that she's uh, – Master of Strategy and Tactics, I would guess that would be pretty impressive. She claimed to have divine guidance in her role uh, as in the army, in the, uh, yeah, in the army there? Well, she, she, yeah, she claimed that she had, I mean, this is what the, her trial for heresy focuses on. They ask her things about, um, uh, you know, what did your voices tell you? What kinds of, you know, advice do they give you? Um, for example, um, say, this is from the trial. They asked what the voice had said on Saturday. She answered, I did not altogether understand it. I understood nothing I could repeat to you until I went back to my room. Asked what the voice said to her in her room. When she went back, she answered, it told me to answer you boldly. <laughs> and she said she asked for counsel from her voice on the questions we should ask her. She said further that she will gladly tell whatever she has our Lord's permission to reveal, but concerning the revelations about the King of France, she will not tell without permission from her voice. And, and it's that kind of exchange that goes on a lot. So she doesn't tell things that they are asking her. She refuses absolutely in, in certain respects. And says, that's not for me to tell. I don't have permission. So we don't, we don't know that she experienced because in the trial it, it, she simply refused to talk and there's there's a number of, of times where it's it's very bold of her they'll be pressing her on things about her creed her about her paternoster once she was examined by charles's um ecclesiastics in poitiers before he allowed her to go off and command it at orleans and she regularly in the trial for which we have the account says I've already answered these questions. I, I, I was, you already go to send to Poitiers and ask them what I told them then. So, 
I mean, the main thing is that she clearly had this presence of mind simply not to get trapped by the tricks that they were trying to play on her. And you can imagine that that bore out in the field, right? That she didn't, she didn't let herself be bamboozled or, or, or tricked by anyone mm-hmm. in, in those circumstances. Which, I mean, how do we, so how do we in fact account for that she's, you know, this young woman able to hold steady in, under these circumstances? Divine guidance seems. Yeah, it says, I mean, if we live in an open universe where the creator is able to uh, intervene, then this is the most plausible uh, explanation. We'll come back and continue the conversation. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta talking about St. Joan of Arc. Uh, with me is uh, Dr. Rachel Fulton Brown, University of Chicago. We're trying to understand uh, the, the setting. Uh, uh, Joan of Arc, she lived her life during the Hundred Years' War. Uh, the English saw her ability uh, to defeat their armies as proof she was possessed by the devil. Uh, she ended up being executed uh, and 25 years later, there was a, a, a new inquiry into her cause, her life, uh, and um, she was kind of rehabilitated. And she's not canonized until, uh, I think, around 1920. But uh, we're trying to get just a feel for who she was. And was she ever, I'm wondering, Rachel, was she ever uh, wounded in battle? Yes. No, I mean, now I, now I know that, and I can't answer exactly how. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Sorry, I was I because right. I thought you would want to ask more about you know the the, the divine yeah. elements of of what happened to her in in those campaigns. I am but, I am interested about, in how she was guided. Yes. Yes, and so looking at the trial records and looking more about the particulars of what they asked her, there um there there were a number of signs that she felt that she had, and one was that she found a sword. Um, she found a, 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 a rusty sword <laughs> um, um, marked with five crosses that she known, and that she knew it was there through her voices. This is, this is it's an almost like Arthurian story of you know being able to. She found this sword under the altar. What's what's interesting about her, although she had this sword, um, she doesn't. She was wounded, but she wasn't. She didn't fight. Um, I was talking about her as a commander and a leader and and, and a morale booster. But she doesn't, she didn't, she never, I don't think we have any witnesses of her saying that she actually went into battle with okay. the sword, okay. although she did, um, she did wear armor. And one of the things that is famous about her in the, in, in her trial for heresy is the, the, the immediate thing that the English and the Burgundians used to have her executed is that she put men's dress back on, um, mm. which they took that as the sign of her relapse. Mm. Uh, she's, she's executed technically as a relapsed heretic rather than simply a heretic that she put the women's dress on and then while still in prison asked for her men's dress back and they used that as proof that she she relapsed mm. um but of of the things that we know and don't know about her the most mysterious is this this cross-dressing right why she did it why they were able to use it as a as an evidence of her, her heresy because it isn't actually that clear from either direction, one she never explains why why she did, except for you know she was told 
she did she did, she was doing what she was being told right mm-hmm. um but dress uh, people's dress is frequently laden with all kinds of social cultural meanings do what can we derive from her environment about what cross dressing would have meant this, it's one of the perennials in the scholarship of arguing over exactly what it meant. Okay. And, and why, I mean, that, that we know that, you know, she, we, we talked, you and I were just talking about how she, you know, took the field with the, the men. She traveled with them as soldiers. After they managed to get to Lens and have Charles anointed, um, she, she basically acts as a mercenary for Charles, that he, he ennobles her and her family. She's captured. This is, this is a, a detail that is interesting that I don't remember about her being wounded, but she's actually captured at Compiègne because she's wearing clo- a cloth of gold, like cape, mm. <laughs> and and she gets trapped in a do- in a gate um, oh. b- because because of the clothing that she's wearing, which she says she's only wearing because she has the privilege to do so because she's been technically she's a peasant, right? But she's been technically ennobled by by Charles. So within all of that, the the, the wearing men's clothes, whether she was in battle, it's like there's so many mysterious elements to exactly what her contemporaries thought and we do have we do have in addition to her her friend's testimony we have one account from someone during her lifetime that heard reports of her which is a, an interesting account in its own right because it's by Christine de Pizan who is a contemporary of Joan older woman very very famous in literary circles because she's the first woman that we know of to support herself as a professional writer. Hmm. Most likely. Okay. Um, and, and Christine, she, she is also, I, I, when I talk about Joan, I talk about her in my war in the middle ages class. I also talk about Christine because Christine wrote a manual on warfare on chivalry um, for the previous French Kings. Right? <laughs> These women that seem how somehow know all this stuff about gunpowder. So did Christine. <laughs> on. And, um, she'd been living for a, a decade um, a, when Joan is active. She'd been living for a decade herself as a as a nun, or not as a nun, in a convent, and clearly got reports about Joan's activities while she's in this convent and wrote a long poem about it to the DPA, de, de, de Jan d'Arc. So um, Christine heard reports of Joan's activities, and Christine is very interesting because she's she's sort of telling us what in Joan's lifetime, before she gets captured, before she goes on trial, what people hoped of her, right? And there, and there's there's three very interesting things. One, that she'd restore harmony to France. Christine was very, um, you know, hopeful that Joan's activities would bring peace between the Burgundians and the Armanacs, right? So there's this very powerful interest in Joan's ability to bring peace to France itself and to help the French. Um, the second that Christine points to is the hope that Joan would end the division in the church, because in 1429, when Joan is executed, there are three popes. <laughs> yes. uh, and so, the, you know, there's not only the Hundred Years' War going on, but there's been the Great Schism. There's now these three popes, Martin in Rome, Clement in Peniscola, Valencia, and Benedict, Benedict, dwelling no man knows where, right? Mm-hmm. There's, it's like, this is a very disturbed period, and Joan becomes, in Christine's imagination, this hope for harmony both at the political and the ecclesiastical level. And then what Christine very much hopes is that Joan will lead a crusade, right? She'll destroy the Saracens. Um, and this 
fits well with the region of France where Joan grew up because it's Lorraine where the great crusader Godfrey de Bouillon had come yeah, from. Yeah. Um, so there's, you know, Christine has all these hopes. And then I, I think, you know, for our purposes now brings up why she has these hopes. And it's it's a nice sort of balancing between what most modern readers are interested in is Joan wore armor. I mean, she looks like someone straight out of a recent Star Wars movie. Right? <laughs> it's like, how does how does she show up and know how to use that sword? Well, one, she doesn't use the sword. She does not actually duel anybody. Right. Um, but but from Christine's perspective in the poem, she invokes all of these miracles, you know, the miracle that God would use a woman to do things men couldn't, right? Um, Christine compares her to Joshua. Um, she compares her to um, the, the you know the great women of the Bible who um, we know had um, you know p- p- powerful effects. Sure, you know, Deborah, you know, right? Esther yep. and Judith yeah. and Deborah and so forth. But but for Christine, the miracle of Joan is that this maid could defeat the English, right? And and I think that that does show us why the English were so the English and the Burgundians are so afraid of her. It's it, it's clearly that there's this this sort of fervor of you know, if Joan can lead lead um, the the French in these battles, clearly she must have been sent from from God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fact that she's a woman is, is that so? Is that that in and of itself is so unlikely in that setting as to be something to be suspicious about from the start? That uh, there be, should be a woman in you know commanding troops like this. Well, sort of yes and no, always. Yeah, go ahead, sure. Um, and 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 there, you know, there have been there's strong women throughout the Middle Ages, right? It's like right. strong women from beginning to end. You have nothing but stories of these strong women, but it is unusual for some a woman to dress in armor and 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 campaign in the way that Joan did. I I think for me the big question is is it more unusual that she's this peasant maid, or is it that she's female, right? Mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. we do know that women. How they they you know assume feudal lordship, but then they have commanders who act on their behalf, right? So it's it's not unheard of for women to receive vassalage from these knights. Um, it's 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 less usual, I think, for them to be actually in the field as as Joan was. Yeah, yeah. Um, when she um, after her death, are there any? Uh, signs or wonders associated with her execution? Um, not that I'm aware of, but that's not an element that I've I've studied as, yeah. as closely. Okay. I've been much more interested in her as a battle commander. Sure, um, sure. Which I think is also, for me, it is, is, is actually the key to understanding what was going on there. And the, the, the I, I think it's probably one of the things that's hardest for us now to be interested in because it's all about proving that Charles should be the king of France. And I mean, the sadness in it all is that Charles doesn't actually, when she's captured by the Burgundians, he makes zero effort to redeem her, right? She's, she's, he's ennobled her. She's been captured. Noble nobles were supposed to be available for ransoming and, Hmm. and he, he doesn't try. Do we know why? Well, I think he's a coward. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I think he. It's it, it, There's there's frustration on her part. It's like she's fine when she's he's winning, 
right? And they make this triumphal sort of procession from Orléans up to, up to Vence, which is still under Burgundian control when they hold the ceremony there. And then they go back, and when when she tries to um, besiege Paris and take it, and it doesn't doesn't work, he just he just retreats, right? I mean, he's had he's had a decade of not doing anything. He's perfectly comfortable there in the south of France. Um, not really doesn't seem to be per- terrifically bothered about recapturing the north from from the English or the Burgundians. And when it's easy, he goes. When it's not, he doesn't lift a finger. So he I, Charles does not come out from it as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let me ask you a general question that I was curious about, and that has to do with war in the Middle Ages. Um, are are there rules of war that are uh, seriously taken seriously about differences between combatants and non-combatants, or what is there a, a certain ethos regarding war which today we would recognize we wouldn't recognize? Well, primarily, it's that the nobility would be held for ransom, and the the infantry would be considered appropriate. You know, casualties. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in in many of these battles in the Hundred Years' War, you have, I mean, the the, the one that loses France um, control of of the region is um, Agincourt. <laughs> yeah, um, with the Henry V. I mean, that yeah. right with Henry V, and that is uh, you know a, a great catastrophe. The French, some ten thousand French, probably died at Agincourt that day, including many of their nobility, three dukes, seven counts, the constable of France, 90 other lords, also 1,500 knights or so. Um, Charles of Orléans is imprisoned, and, and on the English side, famously, only very very few die. The, the, that is, for the French, a, a horrible defeat, but it's mainly because so many of the nobility are, are, are captured and killed. Mm-hmm. Um, that okay. w- One of the things that's happening over the course of the Hundred Years War, one, and this is why the cannon are so important, that Christine knows how to deploy and so forth, is cannon begin to be used over the course of the, the 14th okay. and 15th centuries. And um, they're mainly used in siege. They're not really used in field artillery until the later part of the 15th century. When, and that, and the, the, the Italians get the brunt of that when... Um, Charles VIII comes down and uses field artillery, but um, most most warfare in this period is still siege, right? So when Joan goes to relieve the siege of Orleans, that's the the main ticket. So one of the things I think that people will probably have bat- wrong in their minds is that medieval battle medieval warfare was all about battles. It really wasn't. It was siege- sieges. Hmm. Um, okay, and um, there's. Accounts from the 14th century um, that are starting to show that that the the attacks on non non combatants, particularly the attacks on peoples in the town, are, is starting to be frowned on. Okay. Um, okay. When when the Black Knight, this is in the 14th century, when one of the English um, besieges and takes Limoges, he massacres um, a good deal of the population there, and he's roundly criticized for that by Froissart, who's one of the great chivalric. Um, storytellers of the, of the period, but he says, you know, it is wrong to deal with the, the, the townspeople in the way that they are. It, it's 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 a period really worth studying in, in the ways in the transformations that are taking place yeah. in warfare, and that Jones Joan ends up in the middle of all of this is a, I mean, there's curiosity and I think a lesson that is worth studying carefully. Well, we'll we'll spend some time in the future going into it in a little more detail. Uh, Rachel, thank you. This was absolutely fascinating. We'll talk again. Thank you for having me.